Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. On April 9th, 2021, the nation's eyes were on Bessemer, Alabama, the scene of the latest battle for labor rights. Officials from the National Labor Relations Board began unsealing mail-in ballots from 3,215 employees at an Amazon warehouse located in central Alabama. The National Labor Relations Board has mailed ballots to nearly 6,000 Amazon workers who'll decide whether to join the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Months of multiracial organizing called for a union that could secure a living wage, job security, and safety for all workers at the warehouse. In the end, pro-union workers lost the battle for unionization against the second largest private employer in the United States by more than a two-to-one margin. Union representatives filed a challenge to the results with the National Labor Relations Board. Stuart Applebaum, the president of the retail, wholesale, and department store union, said Amazon workers felt intimidated. What I think you saw in the results, despite the number of people who signed cards, was a real fear that they were going to lose their jobs if they voted for the union. Fear busted up another potential union. But it wasn't just fear. One worker asserted, Amazon is just a game with rules. Learn the rules, play the game, move up, win. The truth is, the rules are not set up for most workers to win. If they were, economic inequality would not be so widespread. There would not be so many people working full-time and still drowning in poverty. (laughs) 
I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and this is Be Anti-Racist. What has prevented workers from winning has not just been union-busting fear in individualism, but racism. In the past, some labor struggles ignored the racism faced by workers of color, but not the campaign in Bessemer, where 85% of the workers at the Amazon facility were Black. Mona Darby, a poultry processing plant worker, helped lead the unionization effort. She told the New York Times that one day a white man approached her and said Amazon didn't want a union and that he didn't want her black ass on our property. According to Darby, she responded, you're going to see my black ass out here all day, every day. Leaders confronted race and racism head on as they pushed for the labor rights of these workers. One of the leaders called the drive as much of a civil rights battle as a labor battle. The conjoining of the civil rights and labor battles is as old as Black labor organizing. Well into the mid-20th century, white-led unions excluded their Black peers. The racism within the labor movement compelled Black workers to form their own unions, like the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And then as the unions were desegregating during the civil rights era, they were fighting for their right to live. Over the last few decades, there has been an all-out attack on two of the institutions that were most crucial to the prosperity and defense of workers after the Great Depression, the government and the union. The effects linger. In 2020, just shy of 11% of American workers were members of a union. But Bessemer became the beacon for a renewed drive among American workers to unionize. Though the union effort did not succeed, the union is re-emerging. And when the union is re-emerging, an anti-racist America is emerging. Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism how to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy, how to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences 
with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Race and gender and citizenship status determines wages. It determines employment opportunities. It determines the kind of labor you do, whether it's skilled, unskilled, unprotected, unpaid, paid. All this is shaped by value, racial value. Historian Robin D.G. Kelly's work has been essential to analyzing the racial character of capitalism, or what scholars are now calling racial capitalism. Dr. Kelly is the Gary B. Nash Professor of History at UCLA. He's written several books and articles that grapple with labor rights, Black radicalism, and anti-racist possibilities. They include Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, and one of my favorites, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Dr. Kelly and I sat down recently to discuss the past, present, and future of the multiracial labor movement in the United States. We had Bessemer on our minds. Dr. Kelly, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I can't tell you what an honor it is for me to be talking to you you know, I feel like we've had a connection going way back. I feel like I was almost at your graduation in 2000, you know, <laughs> listening to you. First, I just want to ask you how you're feeling, you're reflecting on this, what seems to be just a critical moment in the life of this nation, in the life of Black people, in the life of labor organizing, in the life of so many elements of our society. It's interesting because you know, I get this question all the time, going back to Rayshard Brooks, going back to Frederick Douglass, you know, let's be honest. Yeah. What does it mean to live in society that pretends to be a democracy mm. and you act according to the rules and you still get killed, you still lose your job, you're still broke, you still are disrespected, no matter what? It's the sort of thing that could produce a level of pessimism, which I haven't gotten there yet. But it also reveals that we refuse to be pessimistic. Yeah. We, we just refuse. Our protests, our struggle, our resistance are signs that we not only can win the semblance of justice, 
but we don't have a choice. We just have to fight. Not long ago, there was just an incredible effort to organize a union mm-hmm. at the Amazon site, Deep South. Right. And obviously that unionization effort was not successful. But at this point in time, reflecting on that, mm-hmm. how would you frame it? I see what happened in Bessemer as a huge victory. The fact that they could even begin to organize workers at this highly policed, predominantly Black, predominantly female plant in the Deep South. And they had less than a year. Hmm. I mean, they began organizing right at the beginning of the pandemic. That's no time to really build momentum. Amazon spent millions of dollars to beat back the union. But more importantly, there was a way in which it generated solidarity, not just in the U.S., but around the world. All this attention was on what's going to happen in Bessemer. In bringing attention to it, people are now talking about things like, what are the labor reforms we need? You know, we're both historians, so we know that victory and defeat never capture what actually happens. Hmm. They're just like too, too narrow. So many struggles that appear to be great victories end up producing reforms that actually don't advance struggle and vice versa. Things that seem to be defeats actually become mobilizing tools, lessons for ongoing struggle. But the one thing that's consistent in all this is that the struggle doesn't stop. I've never seen it happen where a group is defeated and like, you know what? We'll just give up. It's not (laughs) worth it. (laughs) I've never seen that in history. Like It just never happens. And that's the consistent aspect of all these struggles that we just keep moving, like as Vincent Harding says, you know, it's like a river. It is fascinating because even the Bessemer unionization effort seemed to me to also shine a light on other labor movements that had been happening for years <laughs> that nobody was talking about, that nobody was recognizing. Mm-hmm. What should people be looking for to understand it? And how should people be seeking to support it? Right. I mean, Alabama is a unique place. It has a long history. We often write off the South as reactionary, backward. There's all these epithets that you get from liberal media in particular. Exactly, yeah. But the South has been the heartland of American radicalism, period. Yes. The one place where social democracy might have actually happened was in the South. I mean, Alabama has this long history, mine workers, steel workers, domestic workers, sharecroppers. And they've been fighting back and setting a labor agenda Even during the 1930s, when certain categories of labor, like rural workers, just were not covered by the New Deal, not covered by the National Labor Relations Board or minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's true that they fought, sometimes they lost, but they persevered. So in terms of this new labor movement, these union efforts, I would argue, are linked to an older tradition of community-based organizing. because they don't succeed without community support. Mm. When Walmart workers in Greensboro, North Carolina, were trying to organize to get a living wage, it was the city council and Black ministers and Black civil rights organizations that supported them. In LA, when they're trying to shut down the Van Nuys plant, it was Latinx and Black community that supported them. So in other words, 
people who may not work in a plant, will work in a shop, will work at the store. Those kinds of community-based links are very important. And if we don't have those, labor can't win. Mm. We're told that unions are the problems. Unions are the takers. Yeah. Capital, they're the makers. And so this is beginning to change. And it comes from the bottom, the very bottom of the labor force. I'm Robin D.G. Kelly, and you're listening to Be Anti-Racist with Ibram X. Kendi. In many ways, the union and the debate around the union has long been obviously a fraught issue. And so you have people who don't know what to think about unionization. (laughs) And what's also clouding maybe even their picture of the union is the police union. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I think in many ways we have to get back down to the basics about what a union is and what a union is supposed to do. How would you sort of respond to that person who they've heard their whole lives indeed that unions are takers. Now they see police unions defending cops who've killed people. Right, right. So let's begin at the beginning. (laughs) There was a time in the early 20th century when there was an effort to create a police union. So in 1918, police officers who were definitely underpaid, it was definitely dangerous work. They had to pay for their own uniforms, they had to pay for everything, and they went on strike. Mm. But the police strike of 1918 was much closer to what we think of as a labor strike. They had solidarity with other workers. And these were the days when police were sometimes taking stands against capital Mm. in favor of labor. There were times when police were like, you know what? These are my cousins. They work at the plant. We're not going to go beat them up. Mm. In other words, the police are supposed to do the state's work and private capital's work of repressing labor workers, right? They couldn't do it. And so what happens is by the time you get to like the 30s, more and more police officers are not only trying to unionize, but the state everywhere, local municipalities are saying the CIO and the AFL cannot come and unionize police because if they do, their loyalties will be split. So right around the 1940s, they said, you know what? Police officers can't be unionized because they have to be like the military. Because, you know, there's no military union. And so their loyalties cannot be split. We tell them to beat up Black people, to beat up workers. We tell them to shoot, to protect private property. They cannot question the order. So therefore, there's kind of anti-union push. They remade unions as these so-called benevolent patrolmen's leagues and that sort of thing as kind of social organizations meant to protect police officers, but what do they protect? They protect their right to commit violence and violate people's constitutional rights without penalty. In other words, qualified immunity is what they're fighting for. Bigger weapons is what they're fighting for. The right to basically do whatever they want to do. In the 1970s, had this whole series of police strikes Some of these strikes were like against pay cuts, but a lot of these strikes were against what? The increase in Black patrol officers. Mm. When they started hiring Black cops, places like Chicago, New York, elsewhere, they're like, this is bad. Or 
the other thing that was striking against were like civilian review boards. So when people organized and said, this behavior is unacceptable, we need to have some kind of civilian review, they went on strike. And see, these were strikes against oversight, hmm. strikes to allow them to do violence work without penalty. That is not what a union does. And indeed, that's why they're better known as fraternal orders, right. <laughs> you know, as many right. of them call themselves. And I don't think it's ironic or coincidental that the Ku Klux Klan was a fraternal order mm-hmm. and that indeed slaveholders formed fraternal orders. And those organizations protect their members. They shield them. They enforce the code of silence the thin blue line, they enforce all that. That's what these organizations do. It is not about protecting workers' rights. It's not about protecting the rights of clerical workers who work for the police department or people who actually clean up police departments. I mean, it's about protecting perpetrators of violence. And that's what it is, which is why they cannot be allowed to be part of trade unions or labor organizations. SEIU, you know, Service Employees International Union, they actually have some police unions within their realm. And so there's a movement within SCIU saying you need to kick them out mm. because they're protecting the folks who are killing us and destroying labor organizing. I wonder if also this current labor movement is benefiting from a growing critique of capital and capitalism and growing awareness of the relationship between racism and capitalism. I would argue that it's not so much new as resurgent. Okay. It's like you could see these waves in the late 19th century, for example, in 1877 was the official end of Reconstruction. 1877 was also the same year as the Great Railroad Strike. And the same year that St. Louis had a commune, much like the Paris Commune, that there was revolutionary activity among Black, white, immigrant workers, And so the idea that capitalism should be replaced, the discussions about socialism as an alternative, the idea that labor creates all value, all that's circulating in the 1870s and 1880s. And part of the reason for the resurgence or growth of lynching Mm. in violence was precisely because they're putting down Mm. movements like the Greenback Labor Party, like the readjusters, like the populists, like the Knights of Labor, who are saying, we need a cooperative commonwealth. Capitalism is not working for us. And so this ebb and flow, 1919, there's a recognition in the Seattle general strike that capitalism and racism are not working. Same thing in the 1930s. So the question is, how does it flow and ebb back? Yeah. And even when you think about understanding what capitalism is, you know, we're dealing with massive inequality, mega, mega wealth and concentration of wealth through the most exploitative means. And in a culture where that kind of stuff, even among our people, is valorized, it's almost like the poor white saying, one day I will have my own plantation. Yeah. So I'm not going to challenge slavery, even though it's exploiting me because I can be a slaveholder one day. Yes, yes. And it's the same thing with capitalism. You know, think about the whole hip hop support of Trump and Trumpism. You know, it wasn't everybody. It wasn't like my friend Boots Riley, who'd been waging war on (laughs) Trump from the (laughs) get-go. But people are enamored with wealth accumulation. And we hold up those who are the wealthiest, who are Black, and say, these are our people. This is what success looks like. 
rather than question how was that wealth produced in the first place? How was it accumulated? Why is it concentrated? Why are so many of us poor? And so we're at a crossroads where there's a real ideological battle between those who say, you know, we need to replace it with something, whether we call it socialism, we call it abolition or whatever, versus those who say, we just need to get LeBron James to give us more money. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> if we get that, then we'll be straight. And so we've been here and the whole history of our struggle has been this struggle with the question of capitalism in the 1960s and 70s, in the 1930s, after World War II, Paul Robeson and William L. Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson saying that the only way to address the problem of state violence is through a reorganization of our society and our economy. <clears throat> so this is a long-standing battle which won't be resolved anytime soon, but one that we always have to keep at the forefront, I think. Definitely. And, and I don't know, tell me if you're seeing the same thing. I'm seeing a growing number of white Americans who are indeed recognizing some of the problems that you just addressed as it relates to capitalism. Right. And then there's a growing number of people of color who are recognizing that people of color are not the problem, <laughs> that indeed right. it's racism. Right. But some of those people of color, even though they recognize racism as a problem, they do not see capitalism as a problem. And even though some of those white folks who see capitalism as a problem either argue that racism doesn't exist or do not view it as reinforcing capitalism in some way. So how would you speak to both of those groups? <laughs> because what they view as the problem, obviously, is going to dictate how they conceive of a solution. You hit it right on the head. There are those who say the struggle is around labor and capital, the struggle is around class, and that race is a feature of it. And if you deal with the class issue, then racism will wither away. On the flip side are those who say, you know what, the problem's not capitalism. The problem really is state violence, anti-Blackness, and a psychological deep hatred of Black bodies without actually addressing what is the source of that hatred in the first place? The fact that these bodies were sources of wealth <laughs> yeah. for some people and sources of accumulation and exploitation. To me, it's a kind of dead-end debate. I think that there are some white folks of really goodwill who actually understand both. Yeah. I think about groups like Surge, you know, Standing Up for Racial Justice. They actually keep emphasizing the racialized character of capitalism. And that anti-racism is a necessity for all people. Mm -hmm. But an anti-racism without a critique of capitalism doesn't advance us. Some of the best evidence for that is spring 2020, where all these corporations came out the woodwork, including Jeff Bezos, who dropped $10 million on all these organizations, including Black Lives Matter, including the Urban League, NAACP, ACLU, and of course, $10 million for him is like a penny for me. Well, <laughs> not even a penny. It's like one yen or something like that. <laughs> but the fact that he could drop that money and say Black Lives Matter and then treat his employees yeah. the way he treats them, as second-class citizens, as disposable. And so only a critique that brings together all those elements and gender oppression and sexual oppression that sees these things as connected 
can actually advance a struggle moving forward. It seems to me that those who make the case that capitalism is essentially not racist or that capitalism is actually an economic system that is about freedom, is about supplying and demanding, typically their definition lends itself to them describing it as a not racist phenomenon. And those who have a different definition of capitalism but a different reading of history, talk about its intersection of racism. Do you find that? I'm mentioning this because it is such a struggle to talk about anything in which we don't have common definitions, in which we don't have a common reading of history, in which we're not willing to acknowledge facts and its material reality. Exactly. And in fact, one of my concerns with the way that the phrase racial capitalism is used is that sometimes it's misunderstood to mean that it's a particular type of capitalism. Like there's a good capitalism and it is racial. Mm. We can just get the racial part out. (laughs) It's funny because it kind of mirrors the story of South Africa, where there's a big struggle in South Africa about whether or not we win the political struggle first, we dismantle apartheid while keeping capitalism in place. The Freedom Charter suggested a different plan, a slightly different plan, I should say. We have to dismantle both together. And so the lesson, of course, in South Africa is that they did not dismantle the capitalism part. And so that means the racial continued. What was racial was endemic. The term racial capitalism actually signals that race and capitalism are co-constitutive. They're made together. The ground upon which capitalism emerged initially was one that was already based on racialized difference. And you know this from Stamped at the Beginning, which is sitting on my shelf right behind me. Race is not just identity, but it is the structure of power. Yes. And it's a means of structuring power through difference. Racial capitalism is not a type of capitalism. It is capitalism. It's like Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, capitalism is already always racial because of the logic of the societies in which capitalism emerges, which is you have differential value. I think the central story of racial capitalism isn't always centered on, say, the violence of slavery, which is true, or dispossession, which is true, or imperialism. But one of the secrets to racial capitalism or to capitalism is the capacity of capital and the state to capture the white working class and tie its identity to race, to whiteness, Mm. and to masculinity, and it works. The second thing is that there's racialized boundaries delineating between what's work and what's non-work. Even something as basic as like what's paid labor and unpaid labor. Race has a lot to do with that and gender. So you've got all these black and brown women who do domestic work and oftentimes do that work for very little money and do unpaid labor without any opportunity to be able to make a living and survive. And then the third thing is that Something as basic as access to land, access to resources, access to loans, access to sustainable life, access to a decent wage, the hierarchy is racial. The amazing thing about it is that the racism of capitalism affects the poorest white people 
terribly because they believe that their white skin is the one thing that makes them better, despite the fact that any system based on differential treatment, on differential wages, means that those at the bottom get pushed even further down. So if you're a poor white person or unemployed white person, the very racial structure that you think is benefiting you keeps you down. And then you get even more pissed (laughs) because you're not treated like a legitimate white person. And then who do you take your anger out? Not on capital, not on the system, not on the system that denies you health care, the system that denies you a living wage. You take it out on the black and brown people who you think are taking the jobs and denying you your right to be white. Yeah. You know? Wow. We're thinking about the struggle to unionize, the struggle to free the working class, to empower the working people. Where should we start? Where should we go? Where should we organize? When I wrote Freedom Dreams mm-hmm. way back. Which is one of my favorite books, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's like 20 years ago. One of the points I kept hammering home was that all the visionary ideas about what kind of society we want to build were never created in a think tank or from the smartest people, but through struggle, Mm. through this constant, constant struggle to change the world. In your work, you spend a lot of time talking about policy, that policy actually does make a difference in how to be anti-racist. We can't just change hearts you know, we got to actually implement policy that could have a function. And I think something as basic as the PRO Act, which is legislation that restores the right to organize without a whole lot of disruption on the part of employers, without doing things that once were considered illegal. The PRO Act would allow for what we call closed shops. Closed shops basically means that everyone who gets a job has to be in the union. And then your dues are taken from your paycheck. And that's not a bad thing because it means that you have a strong union that will fight for you. And so the kind of strategies and tactics that Amazon was able to use to basically win this election, those things would be rendered illegal Hmm. under the PRO Act. So that's just a basic, basic thing. I mean, of course, we always need people to be organized and organized and organized. But I think we're seeing organizations. We're seeing organizations under incredible duress still proceeding. But it's very hard to organize in a world of social media and atomization where people feel a deep sense of alienation. You know, when Marx was writing as a young Marx, his concern was less about capital's operations and more about alienation. Mm. And that's what we're facing now. We have whole generations of people who just feel alone. And when, in the context of making their statements, their critiques or this pushback, I mean, they just dump. You know, say like, I'm just going to unfriend you. I'm going to get rid of you. So one of the things that we are not good at right now, which I think is a very important tool of, not just a tool, but an ethic of organizing, is how do we be together, argue with one another, disagree, make mistakes, and still keep building together. I'm going to get myself in trouble for this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. You know, I'm about to retire. So I'm so frustrated with this idea that you dismiss every single person 
who doesn't have the right language or understanding as hopelessly racist, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the people we got to hold on to. Yeah. All the people who make errors, all the people who make mistakes, people whose gender politics are problematic, how do you transform them by bringing them in the circle and struggling with them? That's not to accept the behavior. It's to struggle with them. We cannot adopt a pessimistic stance that says everybody's anti-Black, and so therefore there's no possibility of alliance, so just forget it. That is not our history. Our history is a history of actually standing with people who don't even like us to build solidarity, not to give up ground, not to allow people to run over us. And in doing that, you learn how to win. And we can't afford not to win because we're on the verge of human collapse, catastrophe, and we need each other more than ever. That's more of a philosophical, but it's also practical advice about how we move forward. Because if we can't do that, we can't build a union, right? We can't. No true words have been said. We have to treat people like people, people who can change, people who can grow. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why I tried to emphasize being anti-racist as a journey, just like struggle is a journey, just like organizing. And organizing takes a tremendous amount of compassion to welcome that person in who broke the strike last time. (laughs) For those who haven't read Dr. Kelly's work, do like me and read all his books. (laughs) But what you oftentimes talk about is not just the Black radical tradition, Mm -hmm. but the Black radical imagination. So what should we be imagining right now? We're actually in a really unique position. All this talk about abolition has actually... I think, really inspired a new way of imagining a different future. And I want to emphasize that because, you know, all these terms that circulate, they always eventually get co-opted. Next thing you know, we're going to have like Amazon and Target talking about abolition. (laughs) (laughs) I just just know what's going to happen. But I'm really thinking about the work of Miriam Kaba, of Angela Mm -hmm. Davis, of Gina Dent, In fact, Angela, Gina Dent, Erica Miners, and Beth Ritchie have this new book coming out called Abolition Feminism Now, Mm -hmm. which is probably one of the richest expressions of what I would think of as the Black radical imagination, which imagines a world that's really dedicated to eradicating all forms of oppression, that there's no hierarchy, there's no list, there's nothing off the table, ending state-sanctioned violence replacing the police with genuine non-carceral paths to safety, freeing the body from constraints, protecting the earth. Environmental justice is not something that's distinct to a particular side movement, but that's something we're all in. Ending precarity, rejecting the very system of carcerality, Mm -hmm. and also ending capitalism and replacing it with something else. Because any imagination without imagining a world beyond capitalism is not ending all forms of exploitation and oppression. It's not genuinely abolitionist. So I'm actually probably more enthusiastic than ever. Mm. We're in a unique place, I think. And why are we there? 26 million people in the streets, thousands coming out in the streets in Ferguson week after week after week, thousands coming out after the killing of Trayvon Martin, Streets are filled, 
with people who are our thinkers. Yeah. The killing of Breonna Taylor produced a wellspring of ideas, not just from black people either. So I think that we're in a great moment, a great moment. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. I hope people listening learned as much as I did, because indeed, whenever I read you and listen to you, <laughs> there's so much to learn and glean. And just the clarity of thought, I think, is critical in this moment. It is mutual, and I appreciate everything you do. And I'm so glad you got this platform, because, boy, it replaces a lot of nonsense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. I was a graduate student when I began to understand racial capitalism. I took a history course on the political economy of the third world. It was my first intensive study of capitalism and its history, meaning I first learned about capitalism through studying its impact and spread in the third world, or what's now called the global south. I learned about the central role of enslaving, slave trading, and colonizing in the development of global capitalism, of racial capitalism. I've been learning from scholars like Dr. Kelly ever since. But I've also learned that talking about the racial history of capitalism can be as fraught as talking about the racial history of America. The refusal to speak honestly about racism extends to a refusal to speak honestly about capitalism, and both extend to the refusal to speak honestly about the role of the union in building a racially and economically just nation. The union organizing at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, offers a stark contrast to the labor organizing of the past. The new labor movement in Bessemer and beyond is poised for success because of the inclusion and leadership of an increasingly black, brown, and female labor force. We are in a unique moment for union organizing. Workers are learning the rules of collective power and pushing forth to win. Though union membership in the United States has declined since the mid-20th century, when asked, 65% of Americans say they approve of unions. Since the Bessemer vote, over 1,000 Amazon employees across the country have shown an interest in union drives at their facilities. But you and I can support union efforts in our communities. You and I can support local and federal bills that make it easier to unionize. But as we unionize, we must recognize the shared and unique needs of workers across all racial groups. We must build an anti-racist labor movement that can secure victories that benefit all working people. We must build the union. We must be anti-racist. Be Anti-Racist is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. It is written and hosted by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and produced by Alexandra Garretton with associate producer Brittany Brown. Our engineer is Ben Talladay, our editor is Julia Barton, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lita Mola and Mia Lobel. 
Many thanks to Tammy Wynn and Dr. Heather Sanford at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University for all of their help. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find Dr. Kendi on Twitter at DREbram and on Instagram at EbramXK. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.